0: This is Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence de Center for Orland Public History at California State University, Fullerton. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra. Here at Outspoken, we discuss projects from students, faculty, and the local community that incorporate public history. And because we believe there's no substitute for people telling their stories, Natalie Garcia, the Center's archivist, will play some interview clips later on in the episode in our Out of the Archives segment. It's Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence de Graaff Center for Oral and Public History at Cal State Fullerton. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra, and today we have a special group of guests to share a special project with us. The uh, Cal State Fullerton Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has created a program over the past couple of years called One Book, One CSUF, and in this project... The entire campus builds a series of conversations around a particular publication. This year's book is George Takei's *They Called Us Enemy*, and to help us discuss this project today, we have Lisa Mix, director of special collections here at Cal State Fullerton, Patricia Prestonary, archivist for University Archives and Special Collections, and our own Natalie Garcia, archivist for the DeGraff Center oral and public history. You've heard her voice on Outspoken many times. Welcome, all three of you to Outspoken.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: It's really fun to have you here to talk about this project, part of this year-long celebration of Takei's book. Lisa Mix, could you tell us a little bit about the project and how the Special Collections fits into the celebration this year?
1: Well, thank you. So, the University Archives and Special Collections in conjunction with the Center for Oral History will be holding a one book, one CSUF event on April 11th from 2 to 4 p.m. here in the Center and during that event um, we'll have some remarks by some of us including Professor Art Hansen and um, then we will be showing selected items from the Japanese-American Incarceration Collection that is in University Archives and Special Collections, and Patricia will be talking a bit more about that. And Natalie and, and the other Natalie will be um, highlighting some items from the oral history collections, and there will be opportunities to get up close and personal with the documents and the objects and to listen to... Parts of the oral history. So we're very excited about that. And I have to say, I've not, well, we have not made quite the final selection of items, although there are, Patricia is going to be talking about one item in particular that we will feature. But um, in selecting the items, I really wanted to center the voices and the experiences of the Japanese Americans. I mean, you know, one thing we have is a very long report by the War Relocation Authority about the Manzanar camp. But, you know, that's the government's voice. We have many other items, contemporary accounts. Um, There's one by someone named Paul Itaya called I Live in a Relocation Camp, really describing that. Another one, a a contemporary account from the Fresno Assembly Center. And the the other thing I'm trying to do is to identify items that relate to things that George Takei talks about in the book. So he talks about the Santa Anita Assembly Center where he and his family were, were made to sleep in a horse stall at Santa Anita Racetrack. And we have some photos from I, I don't think we have photos of Santa Anita, but we have photos from other assembly centers, some of them by Dorothy Lang, who was a an amazing documentary photographer. So I, I think I'll definitely be <laughs> showing some of those. Um another thing he talks about is going to school in the camp, like under the under the the stands in Santa Anita racetrack, and we have some accounts and documents from school teachers. Um, he also talks about um, those Japanese young men who took the opportunity to go and fight for the American side in World War II, the, the heroic 442nd Regiment, which you know he did not, his father did not, but there is a part of the book where he discusses that, and we have some materials related to that. Um, and then, you know, sadly, he and his parents and his brother and sister were sent to the Tua Lake um, encampment, and that was for people who answered no, no on the loyalty questionnaire, which I don't, I don't know if we want to get into that. Sure, elaborate. we should. Yeah, uh, okay. Tua Lake
0: was different than right. That gave it a very different character than the other camps. Right. Uh, And he does talk about this. Um, Tell us more about About Tool Lake.
1: Okay. So we do have some materials from Tool Lake. And um, as he points out, um, nearly half... So there were, he says at its peak, there were 18,000 internees, but nearly half of those were children who obviously are innocent. But um, the reason they were sent there is there was a loyalty questionnaire. And I hope I can find this without making too much page noise here. Here, Okay. So there were these two critical questions, and George Takei has talked about this, and I know um, I've heard Professor Craig Ihara talk about this as well. There was a loyalty questionnaire that all of the Japanese interned Japanese Americans were made to take and the two questions that tripped everyone up were number 27 are you willing to serve in the armed forces of the United States on combat duty wherever ordered and those young men whom i mentioned earlier those were the the 442nd regiment they had answered yes to that question and then number 28 which I've heard George Takei talk about this, about how it's really a trick question. It's, will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States of America and faithfully defend the United States from any and all attack by foreign or domestic forces? And then the second part that was the trick question, which said, and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the Japanese
0: emperor. And... The trick being that it, it it starts from an assumption of your disloyalty, right? Right. Your loyalty to another country, right? And then you have to affirm your loyalty to the United States. It was insulting,
1: right? It was insulting, but it's also to answer yes to that question, you are admitting that you were loyal exactly. to the emperor, which his parents were not. So his parents answered no to both of those questions, which made them the so-called no-nos, and. They were because of that. They were sent to Tool Lake, and we do have some materials from Tool Lake, and in our collection related. And from Tool
0: Lake, there were actually people deported to uh, Japan.
1: Japan, yes, and that almost happened to George Takei's mother. Uh, That's described in the book how she was pretty much saved at the last minute from being deported, Um, and then. You know, finally, I wanted to mention, this was a sort of bright spot in the book. It's it's amazing. There are a lot of bright spots in the book because he's talking about childhood memories. But he mentions um, Herbert Nicholson, who was a Quaker missionary, and he helped out a lot of the people at the camps here in this area of California, and he would bring them books from Vromans Bookstore and um, he would take people's pets to the vet and do other errands for them. And we do have a little bit of material on him, one folder, and um, so I, I will probably probably bring that to the event.
0: For those of you who don't know, the, the book is actually a graphic memoir, I guess we could call it, right? Right. It's, it's done in graphic form, uh, we used to call it cartoon, but now we understand that there's a level of sophistication <laughs> to this format, and it's interesting that he chose that format for this. Why do you suppose he he did that?
1: Well, I think it may be because there are things that you can show in drawing that you cannot show if it in with a photograph or in words, and I think it also captures this quality of childhood memories, which is a, a running theme throughout the book. I mean, they're not all childhood memories mm-hmm. because he goes right up to his adulthood and meeting Gene Roddenberry and getting into Star Trek, but it's mostly the, the recollections of the camp are mostly through the lens of childhood. And he talks about these things that he thought we're fun, you know, when they get sent to Santa Anita, he said, "We get to sleep where the horse's slept, cool, and his parents are just
0: horrified. It's a very different experience for the parents, yeah right yes. right
1: and and it's it it just i think the the graphic novel style helps show that, and um, I probably can't find the page again, but I was showing Patricia this morning how just on one page there are it's where they're talking about when the camps are being closed and they're all going to be sent away and there's one panel where you know it's at that point i think he might be 8 or 9 years old and then the next panel it's kind of depicting his fear and and he's drawn as a smaller boy there it's like something scary happens and he gets smaller Hmm. Which you, the only way you can do that is through graphics like this. Right,
0: right. Fantastic. Um, it sounds like a really exciting archival project, exhibition. And you, Patricia, have been working uh, with these materials, gathering this together. I What's have. it been like working on this project?
2: I have. Um, well, I've often referred to this photo album from the collection um, in. Classes who come into special collections for instruction. Um, Se- Seiko Ishida's photo album because it shows the entirety of her life from her time as a child and when her parents sent her to Japan for education, so she is kibei, and um, uh, her life in Seattle, and then later in Los Angeles, and then the last section of the photo album depicts her time in Manzanar starting with these very haunting images of the, the entrance to Manzanar and the guard tower. And so um, because it's visual, um, it's e- easy to describe to a class that can walk up to it and see it and immediately, very much like the imagery in they call this em- enemy, seeing the photographs of the camp, seeing the photographs of the people is very, very, very powerful and immediate. Um, So I do always mention that there is an oral history related to it, and I have the transcript for it. I keep it with the photo album so that students can leaf through it. But really what they do is they look at the album first, right? That's the most, it's kind of the easiest thing to look at when you have, I often do a layout with many items. So they they only have a few minutes to go through each item. And so... um, that's been my focus, just sort of revisiting it and looking at it more closely and looking at her life more closely and creating some graphic images for the display. Um, but as part of sort of thinking about this collection, I I also began exploring the origin of the collection that we have in special collections. And so, so from one book to another, um, the collection In Special Collections began as materials that were donated by Georgia Day Robertson in the 1960s to Special Collections through one of our history faculty and um, a manuscript of her book called The Harvest of Hate um, about a Japanese family, Japanese-American family, excuse me, interned in um, Poston. And the author, Georgia Day Robertson, had administered um, the school's at the Poston camp. So she had a lot of um, experience with the internees and got to know them very well and um, did a ton of research, wrote this book, and then it was never published. So it was donated to Special Collections and it sat there for many, many years. Um, Art Hansen heard about... Art Hansen, being the former director of um, the Center for Oral Public History, heard about this manuscript through the former head of special collections, Linda Herman, and began the Japanese American um, oral history project from this. So it's kind of interesting how these how these novels are somewhat connected, um, but that this collection, which I've always wondered why we had part of it and you had part of it. It's always been this kind of question in my mind, like how much of this like how what how what because it is it's a mix of items and it's really difficult to tell which files came from whom um, it was because it was later organized by a member of the cough project so we, we don't actually know
0: it's a good thing we're working, working together then exactly <laughs> <laughs> and that was my thoughts
2: that was my thought exactly when the call for um, presentations was sent out i i mentioned to lisa we had this collection and that this was finally the chance we've been talking about doing something together yes. for a long time. This was finally a chance for us to do something together because we had this, you know, coordinated collection or complementary collection, I guess. So that is sort of the quick story of how um, we got the collection and then the how the oral histories stemmed from that. Art Hansen, who was really, really dedicated to not only doing this oral history project, but finding Georgia Day Robertson, finally did find her after about six or seven years of doing interviews and looking for her. And um, she was in her 90s, I believe, when they finally found her. Um, Her niece had, she had told her niece that Cal State Fullerton had this manuscript, and her niece contacted the campus, and eventually she gave us The address, and they tracked her down. Art Hansen interviewed Georgia Day Robertson as well, and vowed to publish the book. And it took about six years, and a lot of involvement from the Center for Oral and Public History. Trying to remember, I think maybe the history department also contributed some funds, and their funds came from different um, people. And um, she was a hundred. It was on the the year of her hundredth birthday when the book was published
0: by Cassie Fullerton. That's beautiful. I thought so. Yeah, indeed. Now, Natalie Garcia, the de Center's, a big part of its identity, its collections, its history, are tied up with the Japanese American story. Absolutely. Give us a bit more detail on the, the story of Art Hansen and how this collection became what it is.
3: So it really starts with Betty E. Mitson, who was an undergraduate history student. Um, At the time, she was being trained by Gary Shumway, who was the founder of the oral history program. Um, And he trained a lot of the students when we started in the 60s. And um, she was really interested in Japanese-American history. And she decided to talk to... Arthur Hansen, Dr. Arthur Hansen, and um, decided that she wanted to work on a project much like Gary Shumway was doing, like Dr. Shumway, and they both talked about it, her and Art, and they decided that they should make a project. So Dr. Shumway approved it and they started it in 1972 and The first stage really started in 1975, so they kind of had their research together, they were working together, um, and through that they started together, well, Herb mainly doing one of the first interviews, he did them as well. Um, It kind of all came to the first section of the interviews in 1974 with the publication, which is we do have a lot of books that talk about our Japanese American interviews with the publication of Voices Long Silent. Um, so this was an oral history a kind of uh, anthology that talks about a lot of the interviews that were done. So the project interviews, interpretive essays grounded in these interviews and taped lectures as well. So. There's about 13 interviews that were conducted for the oral history program between 1966 and 1972. And all the individuals uh, that were interviewed were living in Orange County. And so um, a lot of them came from Japanese ancestry. And they were a lot of them at the beginning of their interviews were incarcerated at um, Poston incarceration camp. So in
0: Arizona. In mm-hmm.
3: Arizona. So that's kind of where it started and then it seems like every generation after that it's just another 20 interviews another 20 interviews in the 80s another 20 i mean it's probably even it's more than that cuz we have over 300 interviews in this collection now starting from that time when Betty and Art got together so it's kind of amazing because you know the first interviews were concentrated on those camps was Poston, and then it kind of continues into Manzanar, Tule Lake, and then you could just see this project just blossom and take fold as more volunteers come and work on it and more students who work on it. And of course, spearheading all of this is Dr. Art Hansen, so his name is everywhere. Um, he's done a lot of the interviews so um, it's really great and a lot of the interviews also I would say the second part of the interviews in the 80s and 90s not only did they interview um, incarcerees they interviewed people who worked at the camps they interviewed the children who were born in the camps Uh, we have various um, topics that go in different areas with this project um, it's one of our most requested projects, I would say. When people come, they're most interested in our Japanese-American materials. So it's just one of the best projects here.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting that this really got underway when the redress movement yes. began. Really mid-70s you know mid 70s through the 80s until finally um, the apology and redress is made. Uh, it's interesting that people at that point were willing to start sharing their stories and... Art and his students were there to, to capture it. Yes. Um, how did you to figure out how you were going to put this together, From one from the, your collection and special collections and Natalie, you from, from the center? Uh, how did you work this out? I feel like
3: ever since I became the archivist, I've always... We've found stuff like that belongs to Special Collections, and then she's also found stuff in Special Collections that's like, kind of first started here. So we've always been collaborating and working with each other and talking. And so I feel like we're always like, hey, like, do you have anything about this? No. Or do you have anything about this? Yes. And so we kind of already knew that we had similar... Uh, materials and so I think that's kind of how this all started because we're like we both knew we had Japanese American materials especially because of the digitization project with Cal State Dominguez Hills. Um,
0: Tell us more about that that's a really important initiative that uh, we're involved in as well.
3: It really is. Um, I'll let Patricia talk about that if you want because I wasn't here I wasn't the archivist when it first started um, Stephanie George, who was my predecessor, was. So I've kind of been doing all the meat and managing of the project, so I don't really know the beginnings of it.
2: I came in in the middle of the project as well, but it began the CSU, Japanese-American Digitization Project, arose out of a um, Cal State Dominguez Hills. Um, they have done multiple rounds of grant funds to support this project and did a call out to all of the CSU special collections and units and asked them to contribute materials from their collections to this project. And so you had the option of either digitizing the materials yourself and sending them to them and then they would massage the metadata and add it to the, um, the database or they could digitize the materials for you. So that was how I first became acquainted with this collection. And yes, Stephanie was the archivist, Stephanie George, the former archivist here. Um, so I had noticed at the time that I first pulled the collection to, to choose materials to add to that um, project, noticed that it was an oral history related project and asked Stephanie a little bit about the history. So that was how I sort of discovered that, um, those beginnings. Um, For this project, we really just got to get. We got together. The three of us got together. uh, Lisa, Natalie, and I when they um, sent a call out for presentations for the one book, one CSUF um, events, and we all got together in a meeting room, and it was just a very easy discussion. You know what what should we do? How, how should we arrange this? And it just flowed very easily. And all, it made sense um, for us to pull it all together. But I'm not sure that I'm describing how that conversation went very well. well <laughs> that's can, how it went, I, pretty much. It, it, yeah, yeah, it kind yeah. of did. It just works together, I, I guess. Yeah. And maybe that's partly because Natalie and I have worked together so much just on the sides. We understand how our jobs are similar yet different, and, yes. and understand the work that you're doing here. I actually started my career at Cal State Fullerton at the Center for Oral Public History, by the way. So,
0: so the roots run. Down. I have a
2: great admiration. <laughs> I have great admiration for the work that you all do. Um, yes, and then we wrote a proposal, yeah. a basic proposal, and submitted that proposal um, to the committee. So that was. Yeah, that because
3: was, of all the work I've done with student assistants and interns, well mainly the assistants that we've hired to digitize all of our, a good portion of our materials to put on this website. I've gotten really acquainted with them and these stories and it's been just amazing listening to all of them and you know uh, a lot of students having to edit them so it's like I have to make sure all of that's correct so that's been a lot of fun and just digitizing even the images we don't have as many, um, I would say images as other repositories, but we do have a good amount. Um, and so we did a lot of digitization with our images as well for the website. So that was fun. And that all stemmed also from my internship because when this project started, I was an intern at the time (laughs) and Stephanie George had me kind of Take a whole inventory of the Japanese American project. So I was in the archive, like pulling out all the boxes, making sure we had agreement forms for these interviews, and making sure, like, what status each interview was in. So I've been part of this project kind of from the beginning, not from an administrative point, but from the beginning. So it's been really fun. So when we saw this opportunity, it kind of seemed perfect.
0: You know, it's it's one thing to have all this amazing material available online, which it is through the Dominguez Hills sort of network that's been pulled together, all this amazing material. But this event is not gonna be an online thing. It's gonna be the real thing, right? What as you were thinking about this, it must have been exciting to actually um not do something virtually for once, yes. <laughs> which we've been doing for two <laughs> years, right? Absolutely. Uh, that had to be an exciting part of it, Lisa.
1: Yes, yes, and and that played into the timing as well because, as you m- may or may not know, some of the one book events have been virtual, uh, and most of them were up and you know in the fall were virtual, and we uh, we felt very strongly that this this would only work as an in person event because part of it would be giving people the opportunity to really look at at the actual materials, not digitized surrogates. You know, they'll see the real photographs. They'll see the real scrapbook. and And I think there's something to be said for interacting with archival and special collections materials in person and really just getting to See what the object looks like for real
0: absolutely um, you know so many museums and galleries were closed for so long, and I think I think all of us sort of missed those in person interactions right that were part of part of our culture, and it's nice to see some of that finally coming back right Definitely. Yeah. um Tell us again uh, about the location, the time, the date. So we'll have that information available for everyone.
1: Okay, well this event will take place on Monday, April 11th from 2 to 4 p.m. here in the Center for Oral and Public History. And it will start off by um, remarks from Professor Art Hansen and from Dr. Natalie Fisakis and from myself. And then um, participants will get the opportunity to see some documents up close and personal. We'll have different areas, one area with the documents, another area with oral histories, and people will be able to listen to snippets of the oral histories. They'll be able to see items from both collections. And I, I think it'll be a really fun
0: event. It sounds like this should be an exhibition, like <laughs> more than a day. <laughs> it really should, should yeah. I may mean, have to hatch some more plants. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I want to thank all three of you for working on the project, bringing it to the public, and for joining me today on... Outspoken Lisa Mix, Director of Special Collections, Patricia Prestonary, Archivist, and Natalie Garcia, Archivist for the de Graaff Center. Thank you all three. And this has been Outspoken, the podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History. And now here's some more from Natalie Garcia with her Out of the Archives segment.
3: Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre Garcia and I'm the Archivist for the Lawrence de Graaff Center for Oral and Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. This section is where I highlight oral histories and other findings from our other projects. In this episode of Out of the Archives, I will be focusing on interviews from a Japanese-American oral history project. I'll be focusing on a few of the early oral histories that were conducted for the project. Throughout this segment, we will be listening to the clips of oral histories from Georgia Day Robertson, Saiko Ishida, Hitoshi Nida, and Clarence I. Nishizu. The first clip you will listen to comes from an oral history with Georgia Day Robertson, who was mentioned in this episode for her book, The Harvest of Hate. This interview was conducted by Dr. Arthur Hansen on June 26, 1979. Listen as she discusses her memory of Pearl Harbor Day. i
4: don't ever forget Pearl Harbor Day. It's a beautiful day. came home from church, and we had a little kitchen at the back of the USO room, where we could do our own cooking house back there fixing my dinner. And I heard the uh, adjutant general, you know, Salvation Army always army officer name. Heard him came out in the hall, come out in the hall to micro stone and announce something, microphone announced something. And I didn't know what he said. But my the word the minute his word got announced, here come they stowed it out of all the different rooms, just like rats deserting a ship. I tell you that building was Sunday, you know, it was loaded. I bet the building was empty in five seconds. And I said, "My gosh, what happened? And I went down the her. area. Was San Diego, because it was a military town, uh, sort of acutely sort of panicked, stressed by this thing, just like you were describing in the building, it was the whole town pretty much no, in a state not, of anxiety? No, not the whole town, just in to be we had the blackouts at night, there was a blackout. The whole line of street cars standing out there on the track, you know, not moving, no lights on them. No street lights, no nothing. I couldn't get back to my, out to my room where I room. After 50 years ago, I had to go across the street to an old hotel. The lobby was just loaded with people, you know, that couldn't get to their home. People who lived over on um, Coronado. So I stayed in that hotel overnight.
3: The next clip you will listen to is part of an oral history with Psycho Ishida. She was also mentioned in this episode because of the scrapbook she donated to the university. Dr. Arthur Hansen interviewed her on August 6th, 1974. Listen as she describes how she felt when she arrived at Manzanar. And
4: when you arrived at Manzanar,
0: uh, do you recall something of your Mm -hmm. feelings at that time? Would you like to describe this? Uh, It's
5: a real windy day. Oh, it felt very saddening to be, going there with just enough for yourself, one suitcase, and you know, they didn't allow us to take a lot of extra things. And the issue of this um, mattress was filled with straw on the, to sleep on the couch, you know, and uh, meals we lined up, pork and beans, it was sure discouraging. <laughs> But it didn't matter to us much, you know, but, uh,
6: so Who do you mean us? You mean you and your family or the Japanese yeah. Americans as a whole or—
5: No, uh, adults. But with families, with children and babies, they had no provision for them, you know.
6: So the adults didn't mind it as much as yeah, people so, families, right? Uh,
5: they had to, uh— fulfill their needs as they came and it took time, you know. Eventually they did provide uh, dietitian for the babies and so forth. Schools too, they had no plans.
3: The next narrator I will highlight is Hitoshi Nita, a Nisei rancher from a pioneering Japanese American family in Orange County, California. Nita was interviewed by Richard D. Curtis on february seventh, nineteen sixty six. Listen as he talks about his journey going to Poston.
6: All I know is I remember, uh, the, uh, regulations being, uh, posted on, uh, Edison Company polls. And this was the only notification you had? that It was yes, public posters, yes, so yes. they weren't through the public mailers? Notes, no. Um, in m- making this move uh, from Huntington, uh, where were you taken from Huntington, and how? Well, we boarded buses. This was in Huntington? Huntington Beach, mm-hmm. yes. And then were driven directly to post Poston, uh, Arizona, which yeah. is near Parker. I see. So uh, you never had any other transportation other than the bus? That you weren't taken, let's say, to a train or a plane? No. You went all the way no. in the bus? Yes. I see. How long approximately did it take you? I believe it was a seven or eight hour bus ride. Did they supply you with any food? Yes, we had lunches. Um, box lunches were I served see. for uh, for our noon meal. Was this, then they were giving you, the, they gave you the box lunches and you had them anytime you wanted to. I mean, they didn't, uh, you didn't eat them in Huntington? Or, no. Uh, so on. They um. just gave you
1: the box lunch.
3: The last clip I will play for you is from an oral history with Clarence I. Nishizu. Another early interview that was conducted by Richard D. Curtis on January first, nineteen sixty-six. Listen as he details the questionnaire we were talking about in this episode of Outspoken.
6: Were there any uh, uh, mentioned of, of oh, allegiance? You know, signing of signing of allegiance uh, to the United States?
7: Not at that time. Later on, in when we were in you know, so-called the uh, relocation center, this we had a questionnaire. Just prior to prior to the time when the second generation were allowed to enlist in the army at that time prior to that there was a questionnaire that was sent out to all the internees and in this questionnaire there were a lot of questions as to the loyalty and so forth you know Hi
6: see uh, can you tell me uh uh, exactly what was on this, outside of the loyalty? Was there anything else on this uh, paper you signed?
7: I don't quite recall everything that was on there. I really don't. But the, uh, the final question I know was, are you uh, when you volunteer for the Army? That was question number 27. And there was another one was said, are you loyal or do you swear allegiance to the United States? state and uh, loyal to the United States, that was question 28. I think those people who answered no on question 28 were sent to, to the lake center. And one who said yes was stayed there, stayed in the center, or they were immediately allowed to relocate elsewhere outside.
3: I hope you enjoyed these clips. If anyone is interested in any of these oral histories, you can come on by to KOF and either I or one of my coworkers will help you. Along with these interviews, we have over six thousand oral histories in our collection. Go to our website at KOF.fullerton.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I hope to see you soon and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives.
0: Thank you, Natalie. This has been Outspoken, the podcast of the DeGroff Center for Orland Public History. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra, for producer Carrie Markin. Until next time.